can you please open your Bibles to John chapter 21? And we're starting with verse 1. We are in the last chapter of John. And we're going to look at that first half of the chapter this week and the second half of the chapter next week. And next week we will talk also briefly about what's going to be coming after John uh, through Christmas and, and forward into the new year. So we're getting ready to land the plane of John. And, and it, is, it is this, it, it, for, for me, it's, there have been different experiences I've had in John where I've been blown away and awestruck. And other, other experiences I've had in John, you know, we talked about the, the upper room discourse with the vine and the branches where it's just so like high octane meat. And, and other parts of John where it's been deeply, deeply grave, the crucifixion. This is a season in John of, of, of rejoicing of joy, of miracle, of, of the resurrection. And, we're, and we've been taking our time in it, and we've got at least a couple more messages here to go in the resurrection. So this morning, we're going to start right away with our text. No big intro here. Um, and so I want you to follow along with me as I read John 21 through uh, 1 through 14. Remember, we're starting off right after Jesus has presented himself to Thomas, and Thomas has declared to Jesus, my Lord, my God. We were there a couple weeks ago. And so we're starting right, right after that in chapter 1. I'm going to read... All the way through, okay? And then we'll pray. So please pay attention carefully. This is the very word of Almighty God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin... Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in. Because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard it, that was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to him, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the very word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we come before you this morning to meet with you. We come to see Jesus. We come to have our eyes opened again. Whether for the first time or the 5,000th time, we need again to see Jesus. We need to see you, Father, through Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to make this possible and to make this happen this morning. We thank you, God, that this is exactly why Jesus came. So that this morning, 2,000 years after this breakfast, we would be able to have breakfast together here. We would be able to have breakfast that Jesus serves of, of the richest affair, being able to feast on him, on who he is. Lord, push away other things out of our mind. Push away other distractions, other trials, other temptations. Give us, in the name of Jesus, I pray, give us the ability to sit with him, hear him, perceive him, enjoy him, be satisfied by him. God, give us that gift. We boldly beg in the name of Jesus that you would do this because we're hungry. And we're thirsty for Jesus. And if we don't know that we're hungry and we're thirsty for Jesus, well, then we're even more starved for Jesus. And so in Jesus' name, Lord, I ask, fill this room with your son's glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> this week at home, we sat around the dinner table to read this passage, and I asked the kids what they thought of it. Specifically, I asked, how would it feel to meet Jesus like this in this story? My son, John Christopher, five years old, very astute, he said he would be excited about the electricity and the electrical parts. My son, Matthew, two years old, extremely gifted, said something about Superman, God, and Jesus. But my daughter Marie, who's seven, brought something a little more reflective to the table. She said that she would feel excited on the one hand. But on the other hand, she said, still smiling, a big smile, she said that she would be kind of scared. And I took that to mean that on one hand, she would relish the chance to have breakfast with Jesus on a beach over a fire. But that yet something in her would be really afraid of who he was. Something in her found it difficult to take in the enormity of it all. And I thought, that was spot on. There is a beautiful juxtaposition, a beautiful tension in this story. Between the familiar, the comfortable, the closeness of Jesus on one hand. And on the other hand... The mind-blowingly, beyond-extraordinary, 
unusualness of Jesus, the kind of extraordinary that should lead us to awe and reverence. And this tension between the comfortableness, the, the, the closeness, the nearness of Jesus, and the extraordinary about Jesus, it's ultimately, I believe, what's going to give us this great encouragement and this nourishment and this breakfast I hope we'll have to, to, to this morning over Jesus, through Jesus. So what I want us to do this morning as we look at this text to consider the, the, the closeness of Jesus, the nearness of Jesus, the familiarness of Jesus first. And then secondly, I want us to consider for a bit the extraordinary reality of Jesus in this story. And then, and then try to at the end bring them together so that we can find spiritual nourishment this morning. So first, the Jesus who is close, the Jesus who is near in this story. The Jesus who feels familiar to us in this story. Picking up in verse 1. As I said, Thomas is the last guy who's interacted with Jesus. So after this is, is after what happened with Thomas. When Thomas kneels down with this great epic moment, this crescendo of John. And he says, remember we talked about this for the first time. Anybody in the, in the Bible has just straight up said to Jesus, you're God. You're not the son of God. You're just straight up God. And Jesus is there. He's appeared woo, out of nowhere. Touch my wounds. Touch my side. You're God. And that's the close of it. So this story picks up after that. It's a new manifestation of the risen Christ that John wants us to see as the big headline here. Here he is, Jesus revealing himself again. But notice something different than these last encounters with Jesus. There's no sense of fear anymore that accompany these other stories. They're not behind a locked door. They're not hiding from the Romans. Jesus' victory over the grave is perhaps having an effect on these men. And they've gone on a fishing trip (laughs) 80 miles away from Jerusalem. Now, fishing, you know, different commentaries have said this over the years, but fishing doesn't mean they've gone back to their old lives. It can simply mean they're hungry and they have to eat. And and they're going to go fishing. And all night, they're fishing. They're casting nets. It leads to nothing. And then suddenly the dawn breaks. And from about a football field away, it's 100 yards from one end zone to the other, they hear this voice, children, do you have any fish? D.A. Carson says that that children is, is, is... Pretty close to lads or fellas or, you know, lads. We don't do that. Dia Carson, I'm sure, goes around at home. Lads! But, but this, this might mean something he says, for, for our sake, closer even to guys. Guys, he says. The Greek about the fish question might sound like, you don't have fish, do you? So it's, in his vernacular, it's, guys, you don't have any fish, do you? And they call across the lake from one end zone to the other. No! They don't know who it is. This guy on the shore telling him about their bad fishing expedition. Cast it out on the right side of the boat, and then you'll find some fish. And I suppose at that moment, you know, if you remember Luke 4, this fishing thing happens very similarly. They're wondering, okay, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> and this guy's popping up all over inside locked rooms. So I, I think, I wonder in my imagination if John picked up this scent already. But whatever questions they might have about who this man kindly yelling across the lake vanish when they see this unbelievable haul of fish appear in the nets and you know john's it is the lord peter grabs something decent he's probably in his worker underwear whatever was going on back then and he just jumps into the water he is gonna book it to shore just swimming to get to the beach whatever the shame the guilt that might still gnaw at peter's heart from denying jesus on that night that horrible night it is just not able to compete with the sight of jesus and the hope of more time with his master He is just, get me to that shore. 
It's so exciting. When they all get to shore, they can barely haul the net in. But when they get there, Jesus is sitting there with a fire and bread and his own fish. I mean, it's just not fair, right? Like, it's like, okay. And then, you know, I don't know if it's, who knows, is it teasingly? Is it, he says, bring some of the fish that you caught. Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast, he says. And they have more fish than they could possibly hold in that net, but somehow it all holds together. Because Jesus not only provides for them, he provides for the capacity to keep what he's provided for them. And, and so, and then what does he do? He just, he cooks for them. He literally sits here and cooks for them. He hands them bread from the fire, hands them fish. He literally cooks them breakfast. Do you sense the nearness of Jesus here? Do you sense even more, maybe ever before in John, that there, as I read this this week, I, I, I felt like there was a sense of peace and joy. In this situation that I, I wasn't familiar with in all of John. There's no vicious battles with the Pharisees to fight here. There's no massive crowds to teach or demons to cast out. There's no Golgotha. There's no cross to face anymore. In this moment, there's not even a lesson here. We'll, we'll see one in the second half of this chapter. But Jesus doesn't appear to be eating breakfast as some moral metaphor. As he did with the feet washing. He's eating breakfast because it's time to have breakfast. <laughs> with Jesus. Children, come and have breakfast. In my sanctified imagination, I've never been able, I don't think, in, in any of the gospel readings, to, and I'm sure I've, I've, I've missed something, so please don't, you know, take this the wrong way. But I've never been able to think about Jesus being so happy as this moment. Isaiah 53 says, Isaiah 53, written 700 years before this breakfast morning, it says of the risen Messiah, the risen Messiah after the cross, Isaiah says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He, his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see his offspring. He will be satisfied in what he sees. And perhaps there's a taste here of that resurrection satisfaction in Jesus' heart this morning. Just for a bit, he's allowing himself to sit back with these men. Just enjoy the morning, the fire, resting with them. Resting in all that he's accomplished for them. Enjoying them in a way perhaps he hadn't ever before. The cross, the cross is done. It's over. It's a memory. He's enjoying these men, his brothers, as those whose sins have all been paid for. Whose future has been secured forever. I sense a nearness and a comfort and a closeness and a peace here in Jesus as pronounced in the way he talks to these guys. The way that he relates to them. But the, here's the other side of the story that's in tension here. This, the, the Jesus who is extraordinary is also present. The Jesus who is unusual. That's where this tension comes up. You can see the tension here. Look at John, look at 13, verse 13 of this chapter. It says, as they sat around the fire, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They didn't even dare ask him. It doesn't say they knew and they didn't ask him. John says they didn't dare. They didn't dare ask him. 
D.A. Carson writes, it's almost as if the disciples were reluctant to come, even as they were eager to be with Jesus. That's what Marie said. Dad, I'd be excited, but I'd be scared. Jesus must spell out the invitation. They're there. They brought the fish. They're at the beach. He has to say to them, there's a fire in front of them. There's bread on the fire. He has to say, after all that, he has to say, come and have breakfast. What are you waiting for? These disciples know it is the Lord, Carson says, and yet they're still so uneasy, so hesitant, so uncertain that they apparently long to ask, in effect, is it really you yet dare not to do so? They felt considerable unease. So what's going on? What is going on? Come on, disciples, what's shaking? It's breakfast with Jesus. What could be greater? We aren't told everything about what's going on, but we are told this in the larger context of John. Jesus has just risen from the dead, and now he's having breakfast. So maybe they're not so strange, right? The the Holy Spirit... Reminds us, he doesn't want us simply hearing a warm story about a warm breakfast. Look, look at the bookends of this section. Verse 1 and 14. That's starting in this section. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself this way. Bookend 2, verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so as friendly and close and near and comfortable as this passage is, this is a passage about the greatest miracle in history continuing to demonstrate itself to these people. This time, albeit, over fish sandwiches. But but we're so used to the Easter story. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose. We look at a story like this and we don't calculate the, the absolute unreal strangeness of what it would mean to be with a man who was who was essentially to put it in my son's terms a divine super being (laughs) indestructible indestructible a superhuman who's brewing you a cup of coffee (laughs) yes this is jesus this is the man they walked on the earth for for three years who taught them and even did miracles before them but folks This is not just that Jesus. This is now a glorious, indestructible Jesus. We don't have an experiential category for for this Jesus at this point. This is a man who has been murdered in the most horrible way imaginable and yet walked out of the tomb less than 48 hours later, batting batting death off as if it was just a gnat. We don't have a category for this. Who's now, you know, making fish sandwiches. As painful as this might be. Just to try to get in the shoes of what's going on here. Imagine the closest person to you alive right now. For most of us, it's probably our spouse. And some of you, this is very real. But imagine them passing away of a terrible illness hospital bed before you. Imagine laying them in the grave. And then imagine 48 hours later, they begin showing up in your life, popping up wherever they want over a series of weeks, looking more glorious and alive than ever, telling you they are done with death. They're just fine. And now this morning, imagine them showing up in your kitchen, making you an omelet. 
the disciples dare not ask who Jesus is because every moment they spend with Jesus is like living in a new dimension of existence they cannot possibly conceive of. And the more mundane the moment, like breakfast, fish breakfast with God the Son, (laughs) the more strange it likely seems. Hey, I'm doing life. I'm going shopping with the God-man. But, okay, so, so that's it. That's the closeness of Jesus and, and the, the extraordinariness of Jesus. So what's the takeaway here? I, I think the takeaway is trying to get our heads around this tension and just, and just see how this tension, the reality of this, this comfort, prov- providing, loving, caring, knowing you, being with you, Jesus, resolves himself with this indestructible, extraordinary God-man Jesus. I, I, I think that's the takeaway here. The tender Jesus who calls out children. The provider Jesus who makes sure you get food to eat. The loving Jesus who invites you and says, come and have breakfast. And sets up a fire on the shore over charcoal with some bread. The peaceful Jesus who just wants to be satisfied with fellowship with you. That Jesus, all of that nearness, all of that humanness, all of that relatableness, all of that friendship, all of that loving, providing, generous Jesus... He is now one and the same with the indestructible, glorious, resurrected, never can die anymore God-man. They're one and the same. Brothers and sisters, that is your Jesus. He's still human, but he is unconquerably human. He is indestructible human. He sympathizes with you, with a human heart, understanding you. But he goes to bat with you with the power of God Almighty. All he does as Jesus the man for you, for all the sons and daughters of men, he does as an indestructible God-man who can no longer be vanquished by death ever, ever, ever. Who can be not conquered by anything ever, ever, ever. Who, if he is for you, nothing ever, ever can conquer you and be against you. If Jesus is indestructible and he's for you, brothers and sisters, then you, you are indestructible. If Jesus cannot be conquered by sin and Satan or lost by God and he has united himself to you by grace, then you, brothers and sisters, cannot be conquered by sin or Satan or lost by God. See, the glory and the goodness and the beauty of this resolved tension of this Jesus who cares and comes close to us combined with this Jesus who's the indestructible God-man We see this most gloriously brought together in his role right now, this morning, as our ever-living eternal intercessor and mediator before God the Father. And that's where I want to land the plane this morning. There's lots of different places we could go with this text. But I want to bring it home to Jesus, the priest who sympathizes with you, who, with an indestructible life, the power of an indestructible life, never gives up on you with overwhelming grace and mercy and power, because he is the God-man. 
Yes, Jesus is providing food for these men and showing them his caring heart. But the, the biggest concern these guys have is not fish and bread from Jesus. It, it, it's, it's not that kind of provision physically. That's not our biggest concern. It's the spiritual provision that Jesus gives us in the form of interceding for us, being a priest for our sins before Almighty God. This is their problem, and it is your problem. And it's the problem this Jesus solves. The men on the beach, just like you and I, have failed to love the Lord our God again this week, again this morning. We have failed to love him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. We have failed to put him first in our hearts and in our lives. All of our problems as a human race flow from this. This is the the glorious problem, the grave problem of Romans 1, where Paul explains that the worship of money and racism and bullying, and selfishness, and ambition, and war, and religious hypocrisy, and terrorism, and addictions, and adultery, and homosexuality, and fornication, and self-righteousness. It all comes back to this rejection of God. It all starts and root in this rejection of our first love. From the cruel bullying of the Muslim girl in the classroom, to the exploitation of the poor in the boardroom. It's ultimately a problem of rejecting God. From the horrors of shot-up nightclubs in Orlando to the bombings of children's hospitals in Aleppo. All of these are symptoms that flow from our greatest problem. We have denied God his rightful place as our greatest object of love and worship. And in doing so, we have incurred God's wrath for our sins. And God is not indifferent to this rejection. He is angry at the world for rejecting him as first in our hearts. And in his judgment, in his just judgment, he has turned off the supply of his goodness that our hearts were made to run on. And so what comes out of human history now isn't the goodness and the holy love that was supposed to come out. It's this horrifying record of war and selfishness and perversion and greed but it all comes back to this problem of the wrath of God we live in a world that's so increasingly concerned with with what the other person did I mean this election you know I'm 45 there have been lots of elections I know some bad stuff happened late 1800s with guys and swords on the you know floor of the house of representatives some guys like you know, Aaron Burr, right? They had like a sword fight. John Barr, you'd know this, right? I mean, some bad stuff has happened in history, but I'm 45. I've never seen anything like what we're seeing right now. The hatred, the name-calling, the pointing, the... There is so much blame being pointed outward. You know, whether you voted for Jill Stein or Trump or Clinton, or it's just, there's so much in the media... Well, it's, it's not just the media. It's the world system. We are, we are living in an age of division, of blame casting, of increasing brutal attitudes and hardened hearts. But that's the symptom that we've cut off God from our lives. But God would say, it's, it's not outside you, Albert. Your biggest problem is not outside you. It's not what the alt-right is doing or the alt-left is doing or the 
Your biggest problem, Albert, is still you and your heart. And that is the problem that God, the offended one in his love, has solved for us in Jesus. Jesus solves it by becoming a man, coming near. And sacrificing himself for our sins on the cross. And then eternally, through an indestructible life, this other side of the equation, before God Almighty on our behalf, he intercedes for us by that sacrifice. Every day, all the time, he stands before God, keeping you in him, keeping you secure because he loves you. He cares for you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to bring mercy to you. But he can do it because now he's indestructible. Now he's unconquerable. In Hebrews 7, the, the author is explaining this great truth. How, how Jesus, having died once for all sins in his weakness, in his nearness, he now intercedes for us in indestructible resurrected glory that can never be conquered. An unconquerable intercession. He's explaining how mortal human priests were insufficient to represent mankind before God. A lot of stuff about the priesthood and... But he just says this. He says, Jesus has become a priest for us. He says, by the power of an indestructible life. That's the resurrection life he's talking about right now. That's the guy on the beach. <laughs> he's become a priest because he's indestructible. And what's, what's that mean? What's the, what's the idea? What's the connection between indestructible and, and the usefulness of being a priest? Well, here's what the Hebrews author says. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, oh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I would, if I was a tattoo-getting guy, this might be another tattoo over Romans 28. I'd have like three tattoos over here. Hey, be at the bars, at the coffee shops, witnessing everybody with my one arm. Hey, how you doing? Could I get a latte? Look at that. You want to know what that says? That would be the tattoo. This would be the t- today's tattoo. Listen to this verse. Because he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever, because he continues forever, consequently, because he continues forever, because his life is indestructible, because he can never be conquered, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Forever, 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 and then some more Forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is so glorious about our Savior? I preached, I I studied myself into joy and happiness this week. Is because I saw afresh that, that having offered himself once for all of my sins on the cross for all time... Jesus right now, today, doesn't say, I'm going to go party and go to, you know, some clubs and hang out and just go fishing for eternity. He, he, now he, on the basis of that once and for all offering, he continues to intercede for me always and forever. He will never stop interceding for me because he can never stop because he doesn't ever want to stop because that's the kind of man he is and he doesn't ever have to stop because he's indestructible. Because he's unconquerable. The same resurrected Jesus who made provision of a simple meal of fish to satisfy the empty bellies of his friends 
is the same resurrected Jesus who makes provision for your spiritual needs that are so great, that are so dire every single day before his heavenly father. That's what he likes to do. Provide care. Throughout every single day of your existence, you need Jesus Christ and his sacrifice representing you before the Father. And brothers and sisters, throughout every single day of your existence, you have it. You have it as surely as he is indestructible. So this morning, do you come in stained and weighed down with bitterness and complaining and grumbling and unbelief today? Unready to meet with a holy God. Do you come in with lust and envy and a heart finding its hope, as Chris alluded to this morning, in another place besides God? The subtle idolatry of, of the hope of this world. If that's you, I want you to know something. Before you woke up to that heart this morning, your indestructible Jesus was filled with a heart of sympathy towards you and has been interceding for you before the Father, before you even awoke, mediating forgiveness and mercy and grace upon your life despite your sin and for your sin. Do you come here feeling stuck and weak and powerless against hopelessness and despair? Before you walked into the auditorium this morning, your sympathetic high priest was aware of that battle, knows how hard it's pressing into you, knows how weak you feel, and he's been advocating on your behalf before his father since 3 a.m. In some sense, we don't fully understand, I mean... This is above my pay grade. This is heaven. This is outside maybe space and time. I don't know how it works. But I think we can put it in in ways that we can understand to, to say that in a sense, Jesus spends his days praying for us. Keeping our faith from failing. Keeping us from deserting God. Washing us of doubts. Re-reconciling us to himself and others when fellowship breaks down. Restoring weary, backsliding hearts back to him. You restore my weary soul again and again. Because he lives again and again. You can't out-sin his indestructibility. He spends his days now. Before the Father, mediating power and grace and mercy and strength so you can get back up after falling. He can do this for the church day after day, year after year, century after century because he's indestructible now. He died once. He's not going to die again. He's done with it. He's done with weakness. He's done with shame. He's done with pain. He's done with sorrow. I mean, he, we grieve him, but... But in himself, he, he's done with it. He's not susceptible to death anymore. He's unconquerable. And do you know what, brothers and sisters? Because of that, so are you. You're unconquerable. You don't feel like it, but you are. Sin and death cannot have mastery over you. Because your Savior is too great. Not because you are. He is. 
listen, should the Lord tarry, if we live long enough, one day, sooner than we think, these tents are going to wear out all the way. I know for some of you guys, where's tolls? Chris Tucker, Tommy, John Barr. I can see the hair every year. It's Greg. Oh, Greg. Right? But it's, we joke, but it's, when, it, when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, my dad will tell you, it's horrible, right? If the Lord tarries, it's all going to waste away. Sin and death and decay are going to do the worst they can do. And it is pretty bad. And many of us have already buried mom and dad. Some of us have buried sons and daughters. Death is a horrible thing. Death has already laid our Savior in a tomb. (laughs) And he brushed it off like it was crumbs on a table. He got right off that slab. And he was done with it. Indestructible. I'm done. Death, you're nasty, but you got nothing on me. I'm done with you, punk. And now he waits until the day when his father says, son, it's time. And then listen, on that day, that's coming. As sure as he stood on that beach, he's going to stand on the earth again. This is what Paul says. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. And Paul goes on. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die. But we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment In the blink of an eye. When the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds. Those who have died will be raised to live. Forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power, but thank God he gives us victory over sin. He gives us victory. He gives us victory over sin. And therefore, he gives us victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So men and women, while we wait for that day, let's, let's give ourselves to serving him. The one who's standing at God's right hand, ready to serve us 
every day again and again so that we can serve him. Let's plead with him and pray to him when we're stuck. God, I'm stuck. I can't serve you real well right now. Help me get out of being stuck so I can serve you. He does it in little and big ways all the time. Little tiny way. Yesterday, is David Adams here? Dave and Linda? Oh man, I, you know, I, I just, we've had sicknesses this week, a, a lot of work stuff. It's, you know, it just feels like the last month has been like, ah, everything's falling and crashing. And I woke up um, at like, my kids get me up like every 40 minutes um, all night long. So I never get um, a steady sleep anymore. And I know there's going to be all kinds of health food people coming to me after this message to tell me how to fix all that. And I appreciate that. And I'm going to take some of you up on it. But listen, I wake up right now in the morning and I want to die. <laughs> like, that's how I wake up in the morning. And so I got up Saturday morning and it's, I got up at seven. I'm supposed to meet Dave and Linda at nine. And I'm just, oh Lord, I can't, I can't do it. I got to get some space. I got to preach this message. There's too much to do. And then this other voice came in and said, you're a pastor. What are you doing? They need care and you got to support them. And they're working hard. They don't even get paid. You get paid. They don't get paid. What are you doing? Sleeping in. And I didn't know what to do with that. Like, okay, is this the Lord? Is this the Lord? I want some, I want some fish and bread on a beach. Can I get that Lord, please? So I just prayed. I just sat there in bed. I was just like, God, I'm weak. I don't know what to choose. I don't know where to go. But here you are, ready to help me. You're at the Father's right hand. You're ready to help me. So I'm just going to decide that though I'm weak and I don't know what to do, you do, and you are strong, and you can get me where I need to go. And I'm, that's what I'm not going to give up on. I'm not going to say I'm strong enough, I can do it, but I am going to say you're strong enough, you can do it, and I'm going to keep depending on you until you give me the strength you have so that I can do what you want me to do. Right? That's the biggest battle. Don't give up on him. He's strong enough in your weakness. He has grace where, where you don't have enough. It's about not giving up on that Jesus who stands at God's right hand, not giving up on hoping in him, putting your faith in him to sustain you and give you what you need. And I just kept praying. Uh, and they weren't, even, they weren't even like awesome prayers. They weren't like Valley of Vision prayers. Like, Lord, I am mortally bound by encumbering festitude. No, it was just like, oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, please help me. Help me. You're the one who can help me. I know you can help me. Lord, I'm serious. I don't know what to do here. And then suddenly, I got it. I got it. God, I'm going to go see Dave and Linda, right? And we had a great meeting. Anyway, just tiny little story. But that, that's what he wants to fill our days with as we continue to plead to the indestructible one to help us in our weaknesses. That was a long story, wasn't it? So I'm going to conclude with what Paul concludes with. So, my dear brothers and sisters... My dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, listen, be strong. Go for it. Be unmovable because you are no, because he is. He says, Paul says, in light of the resurrection, in light of the indestructible life of Jesus Christ, he says, always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. We have an indestructible, extraordinarily near Jesus, let's go to him. Let's rely on him. Amen.